We've been moving, moving right through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're currently in a section, uh, a, a large section that takes up chapters 5 and 6, uh, where Paul is specifically dealing with sin issues in the church in Corinth. And not just sin issues in the church, but how the church is wrongly responding to those issues. Um, we've kind of entitled this series that we're moving through, Judging the Church, and not just because it's provocative, but that phrase really does sum up the content of what the scriptures has for us to ponder during this series, which is effectively, how do we respond to sin within the church? And we're picking up um, mid-thought tonight, and so before we read the passage, it's helpful to just kind of review what Paul's already laid on the table, both the circumstances and what he's um, called the church to do in reaction to those circumstances. So here's the simplified version. Uh, there is a man in the church in Corinth who is having some sort of sexual relationship with his father's wife, what we would call his stepmother. We're not given any other details. We can assume, because of some of the things written in 2 Corinthians, that he's doing this while his father is still alive, and so it would be rightly labeled an affair. They've just uh, you know, broken against the confines of both the father-son relationship, the husband-wife relationship, and are now living together. And uh, Paul is not addressing this fact as much as the, the reaction to this fact, which was nothing. The church has not responded to this at all. He says that instead of them mourning this man's sin and seeking to do something about it, they've been arrogant. And so either they're arrogant and think, well, we've got so much going for us as a church. God is so present in our midst because obviously, just look at us, that this really isn't that big of a deal. Or it's even possible that they somehow, um, somehow applaud this reality as being a demonstration of how gracious or how loving they are as a church or a demonstration that they've somehow transcended the old definitions of law and gospel and are now really living out their quote-end-quote freedom. Um, either way, Paul says they've fallen off the boat. They're completely missing uh, and misinterpreting what's going on here, and he says this should have brought about mourning. And then he says in response, what they should have done is effectively given the guy an ultimatum and either said, either you walk away from this behavior, from your sexual immorality, uh, or we have to part ways. You cannot be a part of the church and continue in this sin. Um, as he's laying this out, uh, there's a few things here that if we miss out on, they won't be spoken again in the passage we're looking at tonight, and it will completely skew your understanding of these things. Um, the first is, the goal of this practice, this excommunication, if you will, the goal is not punishment. The goal is not, um, not containment in the sense of we need to put a stop to this before it ruins our lives. The goal is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. We talked last Sunday about the fact that, um, that sin inherently does two things. It separates and it kills. And so he's living as if he can have his cake and eat it too. He's living as if he can enjoy sin, you know, handle fire and not get burned. And by the church allowing the appearance of fellowship to going on, allowing the appearance that all things are okay, they're actually veiling how serious things truly are. They're not bringing reality to bear on the situation but the goal is restoration. The goal is for that man to be brought back into fellowship, 
to be restored in his relationship with Jesus. There is plenty of forgiveness and restoration available in Jesus. They just need to put him in a place where he recognizes that need and responds. Another important point here is that this, the way that this is handled is not in some sort of uh, corporal or, uh, or capital punishment, not in some form of shaming or, uh, or reputation spoiling or anything. It's just an ending of fellowship. It's just stopping of spending time with eating meals together, as we'll see tonight. And that implies something super important to this process. It implies that not being a part of the church, this local church, the one in Corinth or our church, is noticeably negative. That there'd be a loss. That when he weighs the reality of the sins that he's choosing versus the reality of being a part of this living, loving community, he feels the weight of that choice. Okay? And then lastly, um, here he mentions that this should be done in a heart of mourning. In other words, he says you're being arrogant by not dealing with it, and if we just respond and say the right thing to do is arrogantly deal with it, we misunderstand here. This position of dealing with other people's sin is not a position of pride or of arrogance or even of judgment in the big sense that Jesus talks about. It's a position of mourning. It's a position of love and concern. And Paul says in another book, in the book of Galatians chapter 6, that when we deal with other people's sins, we should do it gently, knowing that we are just as prone to the same sins. So even if you're not culpable of the same sins, you're definitely capable. And so you do this with a sensitive and soft heart. If I can just nail this down with one more way the Bible talks about it, Jesus himself says that before we deal with the sin of others, we need to deal with our own sin. And he says, why, why do you want to take out the speck in your brother's eye when you haven't dealt with the log in your own? First, he says, take out the log in your own eye, and then you'll be in a right position to remove the speck. And there's two things that I think come out in that illustration. One is that our own sin is blinding. And so we never deal with other people's sin well when we've got this big issue skewing our whole understanding of things. For example, if someone sins against you and you naturally react to that, you generally react as a sinner. You give a full frontal reaction to what's just happened, right? And so what Jesus is saying is you have to remove that first before you can come and seek restoration instead of vengeance, okay? But the other thing is not only is our sin blinding, but imagine... Imagine you've got whatever Jesus means by a log, right? By a large piece of timber in your eye, and you've just gone through the process of removing it. How is it going to change the way you do it with someone else? Are your hands going to be a little bit more friendly? Are you going to be a little bit more cautious and gentle? There's this reality, too, that we come to others dealing with their sin, knowing that we're prone to the same thing, and knowing that we have also stumbled and succumbed and have fallen in these things, and so we deal gently, okay? If you miss out on all of those realities that, that, um, that this implies a loving community that's a loss to leave, uh, that it's rooted in a heart of mourning and concern and love, that it's done gel- gently knowing uh, that, um, that we're prone to the same things, and most importantly, that it's done towards the goal of restoration. If you miss that, then you, you will miss the heart of what we call church discipline. And many, many churches, maybe even situations that you're aware of, have taken half of these truths truths, and dealt with them poorly and dealt damage instead of healing, okay? Now, 
what Paul does tonight is he continues on, is he brings a clarification to the issue. And before we can see how it's clarifying for us, we have to recognize he's not clarifying it for us. You see, what Paul will say in the first verse we read tonight is, I already tried to talk to you about these things. I wrote to you, he says, not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I was not, when I said that, talking about people outside the church, but inside. And so what we'll learn tonight is that Paul had already, although a little bit more subtly and a little bit more generally, without kind of pulling off the band-aid and showing, you know, the depth of the problem here, he had already tried to bring it up and they had misconstrued it construed it. They had misunderstood it. They had misapplied it. And so he feels the need to clarify here, but it does bring a tremendously valuable clarification for us. Because what we're going to discover tonight is the way that we deal with, uh, with ongoing sin in the church and the way that we deal with it outside the church, the way that we deal with it with family members, brothers and sisters, and the way we deal with it with non-Christians, the way we deal with it with um, people who are a part of the church and not is different, okay? And without this clarification, there would be this tendency to get it wrong. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the passage. It starts in verse 9 of chapter 5, goes to the end of the chapter here in verse 13. We'll pray and we'll take a closer look. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those is, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. God, we recognize that this instance that prompted Paul to write was a specific instance in a specific church. And so this clarification was a specific clarification for a specific misunderstanding. But we stand tonight on the promise of your self-same Bible that says all scripture is profitable to us because it is inspired by God, because it is breathed out by God, because it is God-spoken and God-ordained to teach us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we look at these things tonight. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look again with me at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, we don't have this letter. We have another letter written to this same church, which we call 2 Corinthians. And the primary reason we give it that title is because it appears that Paul wrote it after this one. But here Paul mentions a previous letter where he already told the Corinthian church that they shouldn't be associating with the sexually immoral. And both the words sexually immoral, pornea, is incredibly broad, okay? It's the word that the Jews used to use of any sexual uh, relationship outside of the ordained one of marriage in the Bible. And so fornication, adultery, in chapter 6 he'll mention homosexuality, uh, any sort of sexuality outside of those confines, that's how broad the term is. Not only that, but he also uses the word not to associate with, which is also a very broad term. It actually literally means to mingle, okay? And, and so it, he, he doesn't set any sort of line that's based on 
um, if they can attend the church or uh, if they can be a part of a home group. He, he picks a very broad term that means uh, to hang out with. Later, he'll say not even to eat with such a one. It's, it, it implies ongoing, interconnected relationship. But he clarifies here and he says, it seems to me when I said that, your assumption was I was talking about people out there. And this, by the way, is not an uncommon response. You see, what Paul has said in the passage prior is that we as Christians celebrate the feast of Passover, the one from the Old Testament. But not just for seven days once a year, but our entire Christian life is understood as a feast. And Jesus was like the lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost that death passed over in the Exodus story, but he's also the lamb that we feast on together which is what they would do in Passover. After they killed the lamb, they'd gather around for a family feast, and that's Paul's picture, his metaphor for the Christian life. It's a celebration, but it's a celebration, he says, without leaven, without sin is the metaphor he's getting to here, okay? Um, and so what we're talking about then is sometimes labeled holiness or sanctification. We're talking about a Christian ethic, the way that a Christian should live and one of the primary assumptions that's often brought into the table just very naturally is that the way we maintain a holy life is to stay away from unholy stuff, okay? And so the idea then is the way that I, I stay separate is to keep myself separate. The entire monastic movement of church history is based on this principle, that the world is rotting and we've been called to something different so we remove ourselves from the world, Clearly here, the Corinthian church had taken a similar approach. They, Paul had written these words, don't associate with the sexually immoral, and they had uprooted themselves from the life of the city of Corinth. They'd created distance between people they knew who were committing regular and routine sexual immorality, which, as we know historically of Corinth, is pretty much everyone. It was just the day-to-day -day usual reality. Now, for starters... Even when you read the Bible, if you don't read it carefully, it's actually very possible to come to this conclusion. When you look at the Old Testament law, and it talks about staying clean, holy and unholy, clean and unclean, pure and impure, there is this contagion factor, right? And so the law prescribed that if there was somebody with a discharge of blood, or somebody who was a leper, or a dead body, that exposing yourself to such would need purification before you could be restored both to relationship with your family, the rest of Israel, as well as with the temple. And it was more than hygienic, definitely. It was more than just washing your hands after you've handled the dead or stopping the spread of disease. It was in some way related to holiness. However, <coughs> however, Paul here says that's a misunderstanding. He says that's not a full comprehension of what's going on. He says, when I wrote you to stay away from, notice what he says here in verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He doesn't just say, I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral of the world. He says, I wasn't at all talking about the sexually immoral of the world. He puts the emphasis on it, and he says, you've completely misunderstood what I was trying to say. Okay? So, here's the thing. Well, let me just demonstrate this one other way this plays out, okay? We all, no matter what you feel about uh, relationship, religion, laws, 
righteousness, however you want to categorize, categorize that stuff, we all recognize this reality that someone with a reputation, if you spend time with them, you now share that reputation. It's, it's a way that we think about these things. Even Paul would agree with that. He says uh, later in the New Testament that bad company corrupts good morals. Now, ironically and intriguing to me, he's quoting a pagan uh, philosopher when he says that. So even there, there's a little bit of modification that needs to go on to our thought. He's clearly not saying don't read non-Christians books because <laughs> he quotes one when he makes this point. But at the same time, clearly then, he's making a point that is, um, that is understood by everybody. That there is this sense uh, of, of reputational contagion, if you will. That if you hang out with the shameful, you bear their shame, right? That other people's sin has a tendency to spill on you. He's also totally open to and aware of, when you read his writings, to the reality of influence, right? The implication of bad company corrupts good morals is that when you hang out with people who do and love and think a certain way, it generally changes the way you do love and think. There is this influence idea. The place where we go awry is thinking then, then what holiness ultimately means is an external thing. The way we go about holiness is to keep from contact with. Okay? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who brings this clarification. But let's look at how Paul puts it, because I think this is helpful too. Because he says here, I'm not just talking about the sexually immoral. Notice what he says in verse 10. Not at all, meaning, um, at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers. Do you see that and there? It connects the two. Okay? Greedy are those who chase after money and swindlers are those who take it for themselves. Okay? Swindlers are those who take advantage of other people to make a profit, who will step on as many shoulders and as many backs to get the money that they want as possible. He's talking about the, um, the drug lords and the payday loan artists and these types of things, these people who unjustly make a profit. And the greedy are those who are obsessively just seeking after the dollar. He adds to it, uh, as he continues here, uh, or idolaters. And this is the one I find to be the most helpful, okay? Now, it's worth pointing out that in, in the city of Corinth, idolatry was a big reality, okay? Like most of the Roman world, they had a set, a pantheon of gods that they worshipped, and they had localized ones who were at the top of that pantheon. So if you read, for example, uh, in Acts chapter 19 about Ephesus, there is the temple of Diana or Artemis, uh, and that is their city's goddess. She's the patron, patron goddess of Ephesus. And Corinth had a similar thing going on. In fact, this form of idolatry comes up later in the letter. If you keep reading, Paul says, now concerning food sacrifice to idols. And if you're just reading it, it's a little bit confusing to understand what he's talking about because it's not a common thing that we encounter today. The closest we ever come to it is when you sit in an Asian restaurant and they have their, their statue to Buddha and the rotting fruit in it, right? Uh, but for us, it's just a subculture. It's something that you encounter on occasion. But in Corinth, it was so broadly accepted and such a part of the culture that your priest and your butcher were the same person. That just to make sure that all food was dedicated to the gods of Corinth, the butchers were set aside to offer that meat as they were butchering it. And so the question became for the Corinthian church, can we maintain our status as meat eaters and Christians in Corinth? 
And so he says, now let's address that issue, and we'll address it when we get to it. But when Paul uses the word here, my instinct tells me he's talking more about something involving uh, either a statue, some sort of object of worship, which is what we usually think of in idolatry, or that he's thinking merely of acceptable and recognized other religions. And the reason why I say this is because Paul talks about idolatry a lot. In another place, he's writing to another church, and he just says, stay away from covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Okay? Now, covetousness is just simply, you have something I don't have, and I want it. And he says, that is a form of idolatry. Do you notice what he does with idolatry there? He takes it out of the meat market, he takes it out of the temple, he removes it from the objects of worship, and he places it firmly in the heart. In fact, Paul recognizes that covetousness is the easiest way to get to the heart of the heart of the law. In another place, in Romans, in fact, he's talking and he says, I saw myself as perfect before the law until I read, you shall not covet. And then I saw myself as a lawbreaker. Why? He's referring here to the Ten Commandments, the ones that are given to Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And most of them, at first glance, are relatively external things. Don't make a graven image. Don't murder anyone. Don't steal anything. Don't take your neighbor's wife. But the last one is do not covet. And it's the only one that is recognizably not just external. It's something that you can do without acting, without participating, your body manifesting this practice. It's something that can be done completely unknown to the world around you and can be done completely in your imagination, right? And so when Paul encountered this in the law, he can read through the Ten Commandments and go, never done that, never done that, never done that, and he gets to covetousness and he goes, oh, okay, this is a problem, right? He recognizes it goes deeper, that his external righteousness that made him so comfortable with his own righteousness all crumbled if the law was more than just externals. And that, by the way, is exactly what Jesus says. That's why Jesus takes the Ten Commandments, specifically murder and, uh, and uh, adultery, and he says, let me tell you, if you even hate a person in, their, in your heart, you've already committed murder. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, Jesus says, you've already committed adultery. And so he takes our understanding of the law, and he pushes it down and recognizes that, it, that sometimes sin doesn't have opportunity, Right? If you live an entire life locked in a kennel and not exposed to other women, so you never commit adultery, that's not necessarily evidence of righteousness. Even for many of us who have never murdered anyone, we have to recognize that cowardice plays a large part of why that's never happened, right? We don't want to go to jail. We don't want the death sentence. We don't want the punishment. doesn't mean we were never angry enough to kill. We were just rationally angry, right? But more important than that, Jesus sees sin not just as a destination, a town that you're not supposed to go into, but a journey that you're either walking towards or you're not. And what we discover very quickly when you read the Sermon on the Mount is we've all taken steps in that direction. That if sin is a journey and not a destination, it's a journey we're on. Like Paul, we see covetousness, we see that it's a heart issue, and we go, okay, this is a different thing. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand, is that holiness is primarily an internal and not an external problem. 
You want to know what the greatest contaminant in your life is? What your greatest enemy to your faith? What the worst temptation is? Look inside before you look outside. That's what Jesus says. He says the things that defile a person don't come from outside. They come from the heart. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you say something nasty, you can't blame your neighbor. He just gave you words for what your heart was feeling, right? And that's pretty clear in the Corinthian church, right? They pull out of society, away from the sexually immoral, and somebody in their midst, according to chapter 5, verse 1, is doing something that the culture wouldn't even tolerate. There's plenty inside you to, de- to defile and to impurify and to destroy you. And so he says, I'm not at all talking about if you're in the world. I'm not talking about if you have relationships in the world And then notice he says here uh, in verse 10 at the very end, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's not just making an obvious point here, which is that it's relatively hard to uproot from the world. It's relatively hard to cut yourself off so that you only encounter other Christians. That doesn't stop the fact that it's been attempted so many times in history. How many times have Christians got up and moved to a new neighborhood to get away from things? How many times in your own life have you recognized you've been in a rough spot with a rough group of people and so you get out of Dodge and then you find yourself in the same place again? You see, we even see this with Noah. Noah lives in a time where it says that every imagination, interesting, of the heart of man is always evil continuously, and so God brings this judgment. He cleanses the entire earth of sinners except for one man and his family by grace, Noah. And what happens next? He's in a, a clean slate, brand new world, completely washed, like it's just gone through, you know, the, the heavy load, right, of your washing machine. It's pretty intense. Uh, and we find him drunk and passed out in his tent. Where did the sin come from? He got on the boat. He got on the boat with Noah. And some of us have had this experience, right, where you run, with your, run away from your sin and your sin catches up with you because it's the one running. So the holiness problem isn't solved just by abstaining from others, but it's more than that. When Paul says this, I think a little bit he's being a little facetious. He's, he's poking them, but he's not saying, don't do this because it's impossible. He's not saying, don't try and avoid this because you'll never make it. He's actually saying, this isn't what I was talking about at all. And the reason is because the church walks in the footsteps of Jesus. If we want to know what holiness looks like, we should look at Jesus. If we want to know what our role in the world looks like, we should look at Jesus. And when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we do not see someone who hides out in a hovel in the wilderness to keep himself clean from humanity. In fact, the fascinating and miraculous thing about Jesus is that he's in the midst of all sorts of people all the time. It can even be head-scratching at times because as an Israelite, as a Jew who keeps the law and is obedient to the law, we see him reaching out and touching a leper, an unclean person, and instead of becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. Right? He changes the trajectory, the direction of influence there. This was his reputation, was it not? The greatest critics of Jesus, the worst term they could think of for him, besides calling him a Samaritan, which actually comes down to the same issue, was a friend of sinners. You, the friend of sinners, could you be the Messiah? You, the friend of sinners, do you have the guts to call yourself a prophet of God? You, holy There's an occasion in the book of Luke where he's sitting in the house of a Pharisee, in fact, somebody who's on the Sanhedrin, 
the 70 members who ruled Israel effectively in the religious sense. And he's sitting there, he's having dinner, and a woman comes into the courtyard where they're eating and falls down at Jesus' feet, completely overwhelmed with her emotions, weeping and crying on Jesus' feet and using her hair to wash his feet. And we're told that Simon thinks to himself, that's all I needed. If that man was a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman that was who's touching him right now. Right? That's how they saw him. But we find Jesus constantly in the company of drunkards to the degree that they assume that's what he is. Constantly in the company of the gluttonous, so they assume that he's a glutton. Hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, and yet, and yet the Bible proclaims and maintains that Jesus was sinless, pure and holy. We as a church have to watch out from this emphasis that says what we're called to in the Christian life is abstaining from the world in the sense of cutting ourselves off from other people. That what sanctification looks like in the Christian life is disconnecting more and more from the non-Christian world and surrounding ourselves more and more with only Christian influence. We have to watch out for this sensibility that says the way that we maintain holiness as Christians is by decreasing our exposure to the unholy. Because I promise you that the way the Bible reads and the reason why Paul says here I'm not at all talking about those outside the church is because that's exactly where we're supposed to be. Jesus says, you are the salt of the world. And that implies a couple of things. One, it implies that the world has a corruption problem. You see, in the first century, salt wasn't just about flavor. Salt was about uh, uh, preserving. Salt was the best and most available way to make sure that meat didn't go bad, to make sure that things lasted. And so when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's recognizing that the world is rotting. But he says that the church has a role in staving off that rotting, a role in staying the power of that corruption. Another thing that Jesus says in the same breath is, you are the light of the world. And that once again implies that the world is a place of darkness. But light, where light is, isn't helpful. It doesn't do anything. It's unnecessary. It's the reason why none of you carried around a flashlight today, right? Because the sun is sufficient. But when you go into the basement, when you go into the darkness, that's where light is helpful. That's where light is valuable. That's where light is necessary. And so he says, church, your role in the world is one of stopping and staying the power of corruption, rubbing right up against the meat and stopping that, right? And at the same time, he says, the world is a dark place and the church has a role to put on the light, to bring uh, visibility, to shine into the darkness. And so even in Jesus' first few expressions of what the church is supposed to be, there's this idea of being in the world. We see this again in this high priestly prayer we find in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying, and he takes the time, like Paul here, to clarify his prayer, not because God won't understand it, but he knows we'll be reading it. And so he prays this. He says, Father, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from evil. Why does he have to say that? Because we tend to make the two synonymous. But Jesus' whole mission was in the world, and he calls the church to follow in its footsteps. The clincher for me on why I'm saying this, because I recognize the uniqueness of Jesus, don't get me wrong. The reality of God in the flesh versus us in the church is a strong one. But two things. One, 
John, or Jesus finishes his ministry with the disciples saying, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And Luke, when he begins his chapter on the church, so Luke's gospel is about the chapter on Jesus, Luke's, uh, Luke's book of Acts is about the chapter on the church, and he begins it by saying, the former work that I wrote you, Theophilus, about what Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication being, what I'm writing you now is Jesus continuing to do and to teach. But Jesus evacuates the scene in chapter 1. But the church continues to work as Jesus' hands and feet. Okay? So the mission is the same. The mission continues, and it continues in the church. Now, this is just a clarification, right? He actually really just wants to talk about how we deal with sin in the church, but this is so important. I want to camp here for just a second and tell you that you, church, that we Christians are called to be friends of sinners, that that's part of the M.O. of what it means to be a Christian, to be in the world, to be out there, to be rubbing shoulders with sinners. And the list he makes here is relatively extreme. There's plenty of these people that we wouldn't want to be around, right? And maybe for some of us, it's the sexually immoral. And to hang out with those types of people is just, it's not something we would normally do. For others, maybe it's the swindlers, right? Those who, who dominate with injustice. And we go, oh, no. We're going to keep our distance from those people. Those are bad people. But we find Jesus in the midst of that. Maybe what you're most concerned about are the self-righteous, arrogant, you know, religious folk who look down on and are judgmental of other people. We find Jesus in their houses eating dinner too. Simply put, this is why we primarily and solely regularly gather here on Sundays, and in home groups. Other churches may have a Bible study every night, and that's fine. But what happens oftentimes when, when we take that route, when we have so many things going on here, when this becomes the home for the church, and we live here every day, what happens is we become an embassy instead of ambassadors. Paul says that we are ambassadors of Christ Jesus, but when we take on that approach, the church becomes a sanctuary for Christians to escape from the world. We've got to be careful here because there's a half-truth there that is very important, which is sometimes life is hard. And gathering as believers together on Sundays and gathering from house to house and getting that support is a place of refuge, a place of sanctuary. But, but if you don't have any non-Christian friends, if you never spend any time outside of Christian circles, then you've forgotten what the church is and what the church does. And so we've intentionally kept the schedule bare here to keep ourselves involved in the neighborhood, involved in the city, involved in your friends and families who are non-believers, okay? Here's what it looks like in Jesus' life, just for the sake of clarification. First and foremost, it is invasion and not just inclusion, okay? A lot of us are content with inclusion. We just put a sign on the door that says, all are welcome here. But I bet that most of us have had enough experience with enough churches to recognize that's not always a true sentiment. Just to begin with, that sometimes that's just something churches say. In fact, you'll find it written on most doors of the churches here on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. All are welcome. But what Jesus did wasn't just hang an open for business sign outside of heaven. It wasn't just sit there and go, 
well, if anyone would like to come and talk to me, come and follow me, I'll just stay here, but I'm, a, I'm open. All are welcome here. No, what we see in Jesus is that he went into enemy territory, right? To the same people who would eventually kill him. Recognizing the cost of sin and the reality of rebellion in the human heart, he became a man and lived in the midst of humanity. That's an invasion, right? It's not passive, it's active. It's not in the safe place of your home. It's out there in dangerous territory. It's a rescue mission, not just a refuge. And so that's what our lives should be like. What I'm saying here is it's not just A, you have people you interact with all the time who aren't Christians. Although let me remind you, because sometimes we get so skewed on this, it's like, well, I, I just don't know any. Really? Your coworkers? Your baristas? Uh, you know, the people in the apartment next to yours, your neighbors? The, the list is pretty easy to build, but more importantly, what we see in Jesus is that we pursue these relationships, that we intentionally go after them, that we walk into them. But there's a second thing that's really important. And what we see in Jesus is incarnation, not just imitation. And this is really important, and it's built into the word incarnation, although we don't always realize it. When we say that Jesus was incarnate, I always think of uh, the Spanish con carne, with flesh, right? Incarnate means the same thing, in flesh. But do you recognize that there's a difference in saying Jesus incarnate and Justin incarnate? Why? Because this is what you would expect, and this is all I've ever been. And actually, it's what I will always be, according to the Bible. The Bible doesn't see the body and physicality as a prison that God sets us free from and our souls fly off to heaven. It says that there's waiting for us, just like there was for Jesus, a resurrection of the body. But when we say Jesus incarnate, we always mean God incarnate. Took on flesh, took on culture, took on language, became a man, but was nonetheless more than a man. Was nonetheless God himself. Now, obviously, it's different for us, but oftentimes the church settles for imitation. And we sell ourselves short thinking the way we reach the world is to be as much like the world as possible. There's some wisdom here. Once again, there's a, there's a half-truth here we've got to be careful of because it is important not to be so different from the people that we're trying to reach that the bridge is too big to cross. And the smartest missionaries throughout culture have taken on the dress and the language of the culture they're trying to reach. If you show up in, you know, the dark heart of Africa and try and reach people with English, you're not a very good missionary. But what I'm pointing out here is that there's this tendency, there's this tendency to think that, therefore, we need to be as much like them as possible. We need to talk the way they talk, not just the same language. We need to go the places they go. There's all of these pieces of baggage that comes in, and pretty soon we're not salt, we're just more rot. We're not light. We just look like darkness. And what made Jesus so valuable in his coming was not just that he was a man. There was plenty of those that he was a man without sin, that he was the God-man, that he was Jesus incarnate. And so what I'm saying here is Paul isn't saying when you show up at church, you should put on your righteousness hat and behave yourself. And when you hang out with your non-Christian friends, you should behave like them. He's saying you should associate with them, you should love them, you should spend time with them, you should converse with them, but you should be different than them. That's part of the plan. That's part of the program. 
That's part of what makes it so valuable. If you were with us last Sunday, we saw that the idea of uh, us in the Christian life celebrating Passover is, is very positive. The idea is that life is a celebration, and yet it's a celebration different than the world. The feast of Passover and an orgy are two different things. He says it's a celebration without leaven. And one of the things it does when you live differently, when you live a life of holiness, even though you rub shoulders with people who don't believe uh, in these things, who don't live that way, is you, you don't just live differently, you paint a big, different uh, picture of reality. You say, the good life is different than all of these things. You know what attracted me to Christians? The first authentic and very obviously Christians I met was their joy. I had never met such happy people. I was a miserable, punk rock high schooler. And this is the honest truth. After a month of hanging out with my new Christian friends, my face ached because I was using muscles to smile that I never used. But it was a place of joy. It wasn't a place of oppression and rules and legalism. They lived differently than me, and there were times where they offended me deeply because they wouldn't do the thing that I wanted to do. They'd say, look, that's fine for you, but it's not something that I could do. And yet, I'd go and do it and be just as miserable, my same old cynical, frustrated self. And here they were without those things and completely content, happy, and joyful. That's incarnation. So we see that Jesus invaded, he incarnated, and then lastly, it wasn't just instruction, but invitation. This is important, because what I find a lot of times is the way that we try and bring Christian influence into the lives of our friends is just to tell them what's wrong, to explain the rules, to point out how life should be lived. It's, it's just totally and completely instruction. In fact, a lot of times, even when I read books written for Christians that are pastoral in nature, helping us to live the Christian life, I find a lot of times that they're sub-Christian, not anti-Christian, just incomplete. They do a good job of explaining how we should live, of telling us the rules, but there's no need, according to their book, for Jesus. It's never intentional. They're not saying you don't need a savior. They just forget it in this application. And so they say, here's the rules. Here's why you do them. Go and do them. But the gospel itself is a proclamation that that doesn't work. That knowledge is not enough. That it's not just a need of information. And we should. We should do a good job of explaining that God's laws are our laws of love. And explaining that these things that look like they're actually confining are terribly freeing. And explaining that, uh, that the laws that God has laid out are part of the good life. Because those things are hard to see. But even in Jesus' life, although we find him explaining and deepening the law, and we find him teaching all the time, we find him in the midst of those teachings constantly and continuously inviting. And it's really on two levels. First, he's always inviting people into his posse. Not only does he invade the world, but he starts a group and invites people into it. Come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and be one of my disciples, right? And this should be true in your life as well, okay? As you're interacting with non-Christians in your place of business, in your family, you should invite them into the Christian life. What I'm saying here is that this dichotomy between church and world is true and very clear as we'll see, but it's not about attendance, in fact, later, 
Paul's talking to the church of Corinth, and one of the things the church in Corinth loves is the gift of tongues. It's one of the gifts that God has given by his spirit, and it basically means to speak in a language that's not a language you know, to praise God in a language that you don't even comprehend. There's another gift that's complementary to it called the gift of interpretation, which opens up that reality so that other people can understand what was said and praise God in the same way. And this is what Paul says later in the same book. He says, if you speak in tongues and there's no interpreter present, how will that impact outsiders among you? What's the implication there? That in the church meeting at Corinth are non-Christians. And that's the way it should be. And it's not just that you should bring, uh, you know, your non-Christian friends to hear me or any of the other pastors or bring them on Sunday. You should bring them to be with the church. We talk about this in the church all the time, but Jesus says, by this they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. How are they going to see that one another love when there's only you? Bring them in. Invite them in. Don't just invade their lives, but invite them into yours and into the life of the church as well. But more than that, definitively, the gospel is not instruction. It's not go and do and all will be well. It's invitation. God has done and receive it freely. And so what the world needs most from us is not for us to point out their sins, not for us to explain, you know, the finer points of theology, but to invite them to respond to what God has done in Jesus Christ, an invitation. And so we should be friends of sinners. And here's the underlying principle of that, okay? We want outsiders to become insiders. It's love. Love is what we're talking about here. It's love that drives us out of our safe places and into places of danger. That's why you've never seen a romantic movie where the all-star, you know, handsome guy just sits at home and says, I'm here, I'm waiting. Anyone who wants to be loved, I'm, I'm open to that, right? No, what we see is them pursuing someone. That's what makes it so compelling because that's what love does. Love goes after And that's what Jesus did because God is love. He came after us. So we should be friends of sinners simply and fully because we want to love the world. We want to love the people of the world. We want outsiders to become insiders. So Paul lays out this clarification and then he goes, here's what I was actually saying. I wasn't saying cut off your relationship with all the people who live a lifestyle of sin outside the church because that's what you'd expect. John Stott says this really well. He says, if the world is a dark place, why do we ask why is it so dark instead of saying, where's the light? He says, if the world is a place of corruption, we don't ask, why is it so corrupt? We ask, where's the salt? But Paul says, however, what I was talking about when I said not to associate with, not to even eat with, was people inside the church. Notice what he says here. In verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Notice he adds two to the list here, showing us that this still is an exhaustive list. It's not just these types of sinners that you should pursue in the world and these types of sinners in the church that you should avoid. It's something broader than that, but it's worth noting what the two are he adds here. The reviler. Okay, this one is a murderer, but not somebody who murders with a knife, but one who murders with words. It's a reputation assassin. It's somebody who spends plenty of time tearing other people down, gossip, all of these things fall into this category, which is worth pointing out, isn't it? 
because we are those who tend to classify sins into not a big deal sins and really big sins. And so it's our tendency to stay away from the sexually immoral because either that's gross or it's offensive. But the person who's just a gossip doesn't even flag our radar. It's just not that big of a deal. The second one he mentions here is the drunkard. Okay? Now I want you to notice that the terms he uses primarily here are not adjectives but nouns. So although he does mention sexual immorality or the sexually immoral, as he moves through here, he starts talking about the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, the swindler. Okay? These are identity. That's the way they're stated. So not the one who drinks, or not even the one who gets drunk, but the drunkard. Not the one who uh, struggles with sexual sin, or has sinned sexually, but the sexually immoral. In fact, he goes on, and in chapter 6 we'll see uh, that he, he continues this, and so he says um, in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, that can be a really hard verse to read. Because it's like, wait, I thought... I thought this was grace. I thought there was forgiveness. I thought, I thought Jesus had cleansed me of my sins, and now it's saying that I'm just tricking myself, that everything's okay. No, notice how he continues, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice he doesn't say, and these were things you did. He says, these are who you were. It's an identity issue. And so the line that Paul is addressing here is the difference between being on the front lines of battling in sin, where there's casualties, where there's difficulties, where there's press back and the enemy takes some ground, and being a prisoner in the enemy's camp. Okay? It's the difference between resisting and fighting sin, even though it's a struggle, and giving over into it and living in it and saying everything's fine. This is how the Apostle John puts it. He says, if any man uh, continues to live in sin and says he walks in the lightness, he lies and does not know the God who is light. Okay? You cannot live a life of darkness and live in the light. That's the way that John puts it. So the threshold here, once again, is a really important one. You need to recognize that you were a sinner, that you are a sinner, and that you will be a sinner. Okay? Sin is going to happen. Sin happens should just be a, a, a fact of life for Christians. What this is about, though, is what happens next. It's as if you embrace that, if you settle for that, if you continue in that, if that's what you are known for, if that's where your identity is, okay? So we've got to be careful here because he's not saying that we shouldn't associate with anyone who screws up. And some of us have been so hurt that we are so quick on the draw of severing relationship whenever anybody hurts us. There's other parts of the scripture we should read. In fact, I'd encourage you to listen to James's sermon from the retreat um, because he deals with just that issue. But what he's talking about here is those who are choosing to live a life of sin and identifying as a Christian, right? If anyone who bears the name of brother. Notice where he puts the line. How do we decide who we're supposed to treat this way? We take their word for it. If they identify as a Christian... That's where the threshold is, and that's really important. Because we can't see what's going on in the heart. 
and the line between in the church and outside the church is not as easy as where the front door is. The line between inside the church and outside the church is not as easy as signing a doctrinal statement or becoming a member or these types of things. There's a part of it that's somewhat unknowable. We can't see the Spirit residing in the heart. Jesus says that we will know them by their fruits, so we can see it in, in life. But what I want to warn you from is something that I find in myself, okay? Because church discipline, because confrontation, because bringing other people's sin to their intention and recognizing and walking this path is difficult, a lot of times I'll look for any excuse not to do it. And here's one I find in my mind, the temptation I find all the time. Well, I don't really think they're a Christian. I don't really see them as knowing Jesus, so, so I'm just going to continue to treat them in love and to do what Jesus told us to. I'm just going to be their friend. But here he says, anyone who bears the name, who would write on the little tag, hello, my name is Christian, okay? That's where we have to respond. Now, does this sound like a double standard? It does, doesn't it? Treat people outside the church this way, with love and with friendship and pursuing an invitation. Treat people inside the church with rigidness and avoidance. In one sense, it is a double standard, right? It's, it's a textbook double standard because there's two different types of people and you treat them differently. But what I want you to understand is the reason we treat sinners outside the church one way is because we want outsiders to become insiders. And the reason we treat sinners inside the church a different way is because we want outsiders to become insiders. So the manifestation or the application looks different, but the principle underlying it is the same. Now, just as an aside, this is true in the reality, um, in the reality of other outsiders, okay? One of the reasons why we need to deal with sin in the church is because it skews the reality of the gospel when it exists in our midst. When it's not just tolerated but embraced, it makes the message of the gospel confusing. It makes the truth of the Bible uh, convoluted. It, it skews the understanding and it robs that thing that we already mentioned which is that when we live a life abstaining from sin, we're not just saying these things are bad, we're saying these things aren't needed for happiness. These things aren't needed for completion. We're sending a different message, and when that message is skewed by sin in the church, it does. It hinders outsiders from coming in. What is the number one complaint anyone you ever know who has avoided the church has given? Hypocrisy, right? And so if we want outsiders to become insiders, dealing with sin accurately and appropriately in the church is a big deal. But that's not what I'm talking about tonight. I'm talking about the outsiders in our midst. And once again, I want to, to tell you that this is how Jesus treated sinners. He treated sinners outside in the way that we've talked about. He was a friend of sinners. But those who saw themselves as inside, he did hold to a different standard. You can see this even in the way that he dealt with Pharisees. Is it, have you ever read the Gospels and has it ever bugged you, the double standard, that Jesus can turn to a woman caught in the act of adultery and say, I don't condemn you. And then he can rail on the religious Pharisees and say, woe is you, judgment is coming, all of these things. But the principle is the same. He wants outsiders to become insiders. The only difference is the prostitute doesn't walk around going, I have the good life, everything is fine. They know they're on the outside. All they need is an invitation. But for the Pharisees, 
their situation is so much more tragic because they've built this extension around the walls of heaven, this little apartment right on the edge and moved in and gone, yeah, I'm part of God's kingdom. And they're not actually inside. And the only way for them to be inside is to bring them outside of their self-righteousness and through the gate, okay? But this is also not just how Jesus treats Pharisees, it's how he treats the church. It's how he treats Christians. Now, this is a little bit harder to see in the Gospels because there's a sense where there are no Christians in the Gospels, right? Because Jesus' act of redemption and salvation isn't finished yet. But we do find a place where Jesus interacts directly with the church, and that's in the book of Revelation. You see, the book of Revelation has seven churches that Jesus speaks directly to after he's died, buried, and resurrected, after the gospel has gone forth and these churches are all over um, what would be known as modern-day Turkey, Ephesus and, um, uh, and six others. And twice there, he says statements that line up with what we're talking about tonight. The first is when he's speaking to a church, and okay, I have to give a little bit of background. If you've never read the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, there's a vision John has of Jesus. And it's not the Jesus from the Gospels or the Jesus from Isaiah 53, you know, that there's nothing in him that would compel us to find him attractive. It's not Jesus meek and mild. It's this glorious Jesus, the resurrected and seated on the throne Jesus. And it says that he's walking in the midst of seven lampstands. And when an angel explains what the seven lampstands are, it's the seven churches that the letter is written to. So, in the next chapter, when he's talking to a church and they're having behavioral problems, this is what he says. He says, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. Okay? The church will no longer be my church. The church will not be existent anymore. Okay? Which is what we're talking about here. He puts them on the outside. But there's one place where I find even more interesting. And it's especially interesting because it's a verse that many of you know and often forget the context to. In, John, or in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man opens to me, I and my Father will come in and we will dine with him. And every once in a while, you'll hear this used as an evangelistic text, as a text that invites you to Jesus. And the idea will be, God is knocking on your heart right now, and if you'll just invite him into your heart, but that's not the context in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, he's actually listing problems in a church and after he said this, he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. The idea here is that they've shut the doors and left Jesus on the outside. But here's this interesting phenomenon about Jesus. If you leave him on the outside of the church, he's the inside and you're outside, right? That, that's what's kind of ironic about this, but it's the same principle. He's trying to wake them up and saying, you think that I'm part of your church and you've excluded me from it. That's why he says to another church, you think of yourself as being wealthy and well-dressed and seeing. And he says, but in reality, you're blind and naked and poor and hungry. And he says, I wish you would know that and you'd come to me because I would feed you and clothe you and give you a salve for your eyes so you could see. He wants the outsiders to become insiders. Once again, church discipline, as we're looking at here, although it recognizes the seriousness of sin, is not punishment. It's not church punishment. It's not us meeting out consequences because you've been bad. The goal is restoration. It's recognition that something has broken down, that there's separation because of sin, that something is severely wrong. See, the Bible says because of what God is doing in us as Christians, conviction is a work of God. 
If you're feeling convicted about your sin, it's because God is present in you. And so when you're living a life and the conviction's not there and you easily ignore what scripture says or twist it so it doesn't impact you, that's scary. That's as scary as when it says that Samson went out just as he'd done before, not knowing that the spirit was no longer with him. That's just as scary as waking up in Compton in the 1990s and leaving the house, forgetting your bulletproof vest and assuming that you're wearing it, right? It's a reality check. That's what, uh, what church discipline is. It's because something's wrong here. You know, the, the meters aren't reading rightly. Your car is bouncing up and down and you're going, everything's fine because none of the lights are on. And so church discipline makes visible and tangible what's invisible and intangible, that sin separates and that sin destroys. And notice what he says in verse 12. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? You know what that is? It's a rhetorical question. And here I think we better put the answer in, even though it's rhetorical. The answer is nothing. What does the church have to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. Okay? That's so important. It's not our job to be the judge. Now, part of what it means to be in the midst of the world and to invite them involves warning, okay? Involves recognition that there is a judgment. In fact, what does he say in the next verse, verse 13? God judges those outside. So it's loving to warn people that judgment is a thing, that we are created beings that belong to a creator, that there are consequences of sin, and to lovingly do it. But that's totally different than taking the judge stand ourselves, selecting the gavel, and being the judge, or meeting out the sentence. Okay? And he says, what do we have to do with judging the outside of the church? Nothing. But notice what he says next. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Another rhetorical question. What's the implied answer here? Of course. Of course we're supposed to judge those inside the church. Every once in a while, I get an illustration that's only dealing in archetypes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you can probably think of an instance of this, and if I could think of one right now, then I could just use that. But since I can't, I'm going to give you the, the behind the scenes, and you can connect it with whatever it reminds you of. But can you remember the story you heard about the guy who was in some competition and mistakenly thought he crossed the finish line? And mistakenly thought that the match was over, so he let the ball pass him by. Mistakenly assumed that, ev- that he'd won the race, and so he's no longer trying. Whatever it is. That's what this is about. This is about the self-satisfaction of personal safety that says everything's fine. Notice what he says at the end here. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, those are, that's intense language. Purging is not a word that we like, right? I think the only usage we use of it now has to do with bulimia, right? purging it or or getting rid of some sort of awful infection right you're purging it from your body or from the drain in your sink or whatever it is it's strong language but you need to understand what Paul is doing here he's not just grabbing a metaphor out of thin air to remind us once again that sin is serious although it is he's quoting from the Old Testament six times in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy we find this exact same phrase addressing the people of Israel You see, Exodus is the first place where we get the explanation of the law of Israel that was God-given, and Deuteronomy is a repeating of that law. 
Deuteronomy, they're on the edge of the land. Moses is on the edge of death. Uh, and, um, and so he reminds them of the law. He walks them through it again. In fact, Deuteronomy means second law, deuter, two, nomos, law, okay? Six times in those two books, we find this phrase, purge the evil person from among you. That law is not just God's moral for everybody law of the earth. It's Israel's law because they're his covenant people. Because they're the people that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. If I made you confused earlier by holiness in the Old Testament and the difference in the New Testament, here's one of the things that unpacks it. The reason why Israel has this intense law that involves the clothing they wear and the things that they touch and how they go about their lives is because God is dwelling there in the midst of a sinful people. It's not just that God went, well, I'll let people come to me through the law and then went, oh, shoot, this isn't working. I better send my son. That's not it at all. What we see in the Old Testament is God invading a single particular people, also sinful, just like everybody else, and then coming up with a scheme so that he can dwell with them. And so there's all of these things because dwelling with a holy God is dangerous business. Just read the Old Testament. Because it's dangerous business, we find the same practice going on. Purge the evil one from your midst. Why? So that they can't sell themselves short by saying, well, I'm, I'm Israel. I'm Jewish. I'm saved. I'm part of God's people. I'm a son of Abraham. And so they would exclude them. They would excommunicate them. They would remove them so that they'd see the reality of what's going on. And let me just hammer it home once again. The goal here is restoration. The goal is reconciliation. Saying that this is an act of love and then walking away entirely and ceasing to pray for that person. Saying that this is an act of love when it's really just an act of keeping yourself clean because you're embarrassed by their behavior and you don't want to be known as the type of church where those types of things happen. Removing yourself because you go, oh man, this guy is a mess and I don't want to get messy. That's not what this is. Okay? The goal is to bring about the forgiveness that's available in Jesus. The goal is to reunite and tie together the relationships that God has made. The goal of church discipline is to take those who are outside and bring them in. Okay. Before I lose another leader, let's pray. Father, I know that um, this understanding of church discipline is helpful, and it's freeing, and it's peace-giving. Uh, it makes this understandable, and it sets it in the right heart. It helps us to tie what can be a really serious practice with the God who is love. But I also know that so many of us have been exposed to poor versions of this and abuse of this, and so many of us are sensitive to these things in general that can, there can still be this hesitancy and this, this resistance. But I pray that you'd help us to take Jesus at what he appears to be. That the fully orbed reality of Jesus is the Jesus who was the friend of sinners and spoke about the consequences of sin and hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. That Jesus could be in the midst of a sinful world yet without sin that Jesus could uh, carry out discipline as an act of love. In fact, the author of Hebrews points out that when we experience the discipline of God, 
When he interferes with our life because we're sinning and he wants to rectify it, it's evidence that we are his children. It's proof that he is our father. It's a demonstration of his love and that he cares. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to stand on that foundation and know that a million abuses are possible and none of those abuses will remove the beauty of the reality available. Um, the goodness of the truth of a God who wants all those who are outside to be inside, even those who are presumptuous enough to declare that they are inside when they're on the other side of the wall. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just love the sinner, but the self-righteous. And that means that you love us. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would deal seriously with sin, first and foremost with our own sin. And secondly, that we would deal seriously with the sin in the midst of the church, that we would follow the path that Jesus laid out for us, that if someone sins against us, we wouldn't just go away offended, but we would go to them in gentleness and bring it to their attention. And even if that fails and they're still resistant and unrepentant, we would bring another friend and just seek to win them, win them back into relationship, that we would follow in that path because we care about others. And I thank you, Lord, that that's what you did for us, that you invaded this planet, that you came as the incarnate God in the flesh, that you invited us into a relationship that we didn't deserve, that you had to pay the entire cost for, and that you made available every resource we need to be with, to dwell with, to be in relationship with God. I pray that as we worship tonight, Lord, our hearts would be full of those realities that you are our God, that we are your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.